Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Whether it was to grandmother's or grandfather's house that we went, most of us grew up with enough of the tune to get us over the river and through the wood. Yet few know much about the poem's author, Lydia Mariah Child. A literary celebrity by the age of 23, she spent much of the 1820s publishing stories, fables, and riddles for young readers, in addition to her blockbuster first novels. But by 1830, Child became an early and fierce abolitionist, and in 1833 published the first book-length treatise advocating for the emancipation of enslaved Black Americans. How Child gained her convictions, and how she weathered the backlash, is the subject of philosopher Lydia Molin's new biography, which brings renewed attention to Child's incisive, and until now largely forgotten, critiques of racism and imperialism in 19th century America. Lydia Moland is professor of philosophy at Colby College, and she joins us today to talk about her new book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Thanks so much for talking to me, Lydia. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So what drew you to writing about Lydia Mariah Child, someone I had totally forgot actually had written those famous childhood fairy tales and songs? Yes. The very ironic thing about her is that almost no one has heard of her But almost everyone can recite something by her, namely, over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. So she wrote for half a century about um, anti-slavery, against racial prejudice, in favor of racial equality, women's rights, Native American rights. But what is she famous for? One of the most sentimental poems in our our, uh, whole national memory. So I think the irony of that would not have been lost on her. But I came to her uh, in a very unusual way. I'm a philosopher, and I had been happily writing about German philosophy uh, my entire career. And then after the election of 2016, I just thought I wanted to do something different and something specifically to address what felt like a moral emergency in my own country. And I had a vague memory that women had been important in the abolitionist movement. And I had also the intuition that in order to spend your whole life fighting an entrenched institutional evil, you would have to think philosophically. You would have to ask big questions like, what is justice? What is equality? What does it mean to be human? And you'd have to be pretty good at making arguments to convince people to think otherwise. And for better or for worse, philosophers are often good at making arguments. So I actually just got in touch with the Schlesinger Library at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute and asked them um, to help me find an abolitionist with some philosophical background. And they they didn't actually know of any, but they handed me, when I went there, a box of letters. And there were letters by you know Booker T. Washington and Louisa May Alcott, all kinds of people I knew. But I read this one letter that completely electrified me, and I got to the end, and it said, L. Mariah Child. I didn't know then that she didn't like to use her first name. Um, So then I just had to look her up, and what I found totally stunned me. Not only had she been a major voice in the anti-slavery movement, um, but she was a major voice in the women's movement, and as I said, in the movement for justice for Native Americans. She also wrote self-help books, books on aging, books on parenting. She wrote a two-volume history of women and a three-volume history of religion. 
She was a total smarty pants. That is why I love talking about her on your show. She was an incredible intellectual and one that I think just deserves a lot more attention. I think it's really interesting that in your piece for us in the last issue and then in your book and also like in her life, you can really see her arguments as you put them kind of evolving in her opinions because she has this amazing written record of what she was thinking and what she was writing about starting when she was like 23, right? Yeah. Where does her career start? And like, how does she get rolling on all of these big, big questions? Yeah, wonderful question. So she she was a baker's daughter. She was born in 1802 in Medford. Um, her father was a baker. Her parents did not value education, especially not for girls. But she had an older brother who loved books and shared his books with her. And she turned pretty quickly from a prodigious reader to a prodigious writer. And so she published her first novel when she was in her mid-20s. And it was a novel that had as its main character a white woman, a European settler, who uh, marries a Native American warrior. And that, as you can imagine, was fairly controversial at the time. But it, it already reflected her sense that she developed by living actually in Maine as a teenager, that the Wabanaki people, who are the Native Americans in Maine, had been grievously injured and terribly mistreated, and that white settlers were to blame for that. So she she developed a sympathy with that kind of injustice or fighting that kind of injustice very early on. But early in her career, and this is what my piece in American Scholar um, talks about, even though she she recognized the injustice of slavery and of the treatment of Native Americans, she repeated the arguments that she heard made by Northern politicians and Northern religious leaders um, and economic leaders that in the case of Native Americans, maybe it was unfortunate, they would say, that European settlers had treated them so badly, but they were going extinct anyway. And so it was best just to let them quietly go extinct. So she repeated that line in children's stories even, so she wanted American children to confront the fact that their government was horrifically mistreating Native peoples. But she also bought into this argument that they were going away anyway. And then a couple of years later, after she had this kind of awakening and really became convinced that this was an atrocity that the United States was perpetuating against Native peoples, she wrote another book, ostensibly for children, in which she's just relentlessly critical of European settlers and recounts in really brutal detail the genocides and the cultural genocides and the rape and all of the things that white people had perpetuated. And I always say that I think there's a lot of rage and sorrow in that writing for her because she recognized that she'd been lied to by people in power around her about what the facts of the case were, and also just sorrow that she hadn't seen the truth earlier, and a real resolve never to make that mistake again and to devote the rest of her life to fighting for justice um, in both that case. And then there's a similar story to tell about her attitude towards slavery. So I think she always disapproved of it. Um, but again, accepted a lot of pretty bad arguments for why it was maybe not so bad and maybe justified and maybe inevitable. But then once she really converted to abolitionism, um, she devoted the rest of her life to tearing down those bad arguments 
and um, making the case to her fellow white Americans that they needed to yeah get rid of these arguments and recognize the truth that many white Americans also in the North didn't want to acknowledge. Yeah, you say in your introduction, your your prologue to the biography, that a lot of the arguments that Child was hearing and that were going around, you know, before the Civil War era were, quote, bad, but they felt very familiar. They sound a lot like arguments we hear on other topics every day. Yes. Is it frustrating for you as a philosopher to read the same bad arguments or the same styles of arguments being made a hundred and 50 years ago, <laughs> as are being made today. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and th there's a kind of strange comfort in knowing, in, in finding someone like Child who was doing battle against these arguments already then. But yes, there is a kind of, I don't know, not just frustration, but sort of rage again, that people continue to perpetuate these arguments. And I think the thing to remember is that they're often perpetuated and spread by people who have a very distinct interest in people believing them. So if you're trying to keep people from looking at the moral atrocities that are going on today, some of the same arguments still work really well. It's not your fault. You can't do anything about it. It was inevitable. Um, maybe things are getting better anyway. Like all of those kinds of arguments that we get now to, to avoid thinking about climate change or mass incarceration or racial injustice in these other ways, um, I think she's still really helpful now for for getting rid of those arguments in one's own head. And I, I really appreciate that about her. I should say that she was not perfect. Um, I want to be really clear about that. Like many white abolitionists, she shared some prejudice about uh, Black people. And I think in particular perpetuated arguments about respectability, so that the argument that if Black people would just act respectably, if they would dress nicely and talk softly and have neat houses and neat yards, white people would lose their prejudice and come to respect them. And what really I find especially difficult about her position on that is she knew on some level, because she says it, that, that often that was not true. In fact, the opposite was true that white people would be especially enraged if they saw black people being successful and participating in politics and, you know, maintaining businesses. And so I, as I say, at one point in the book, I think one of the lessons for people like me as a white American trying to make my way through very similar um, dynamics today is that it's, it's, that's a huge burden to place on black people or other people who are oppressed in various ways and that the real problem is when people wring their hands on the one hand, as it were, um, about racial injustice. And then on the other hand, try to convince the people suffering it that it doesn't really exist or that it will it is going away or will get better if they only do X, Y or Z. So I really try to take the lessons that I feel like I learned from her life and reflect on the way I think they can operate in my own life. So. How does Child's perspective evolve, you know, because she goes from, as you say, this sort of, you know, kind of being sympathetic, but buying all of these bad arguments. And then she just completely reverses her position, you know, like in some early short stories, as you've written, she says, slavery is going to go away. Like Southerners will see that it's bad and they'll emancipate their slaves themselves, which 
we know from the Civil War they did not do. But how does she make that total shift? And what pushes her to commit her whole life, basically, to changing not only her own mind, but other people's minds? Yeah, I think the background I'd give for that, it has to do with David Walker, who was a Black Bostonian who in 1829 wrote um, an, was called An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. It had a very long, a much longer title than that, but that's what it's sometimes called. And that was a kind of excoriation of white people's behavior. And, and Walker was so good at calling Americans out both on the way they were betraying their religious commitments. So they called themselves Christians and participated in these sorts of genocides and et cetera. And then also their founding documents so that you could read Thomas Jefferson and then just look around you and see that Americans were not living up to any of those principles. And there was also another black abolitionist named Mariah Stewart in Boston at the time who gave speeches, actually, which was essentially unheard of for a woman, much less a black woman. And they, together with some other black families in Boston, had really laid the foundation for an abolitionist movement such that when William Lloyd Garrison, who was an, a white man, an editor and publisher, came to Boston to try to fight slavery there, they had built a community that supported him. And so he came to Boston, I think, in part for that reason, and then decided that this was the best place for him to launch his newspaper, The Liberator, which the Black community helped him launch. And then Garrison knew that he needed white allies. He knew that he needed other white authors who could convince white people to listen. And Garrison himself had done a really good job of listening to the Black community so Garrison was a genius at constructing arguments that just kind of cut people off at the knees. Um, and, and many people described listening to him as a conversion experience. So he recruited Child. He knew that she was a, a novelist who could write with sympathy. He knew that she had her public's trust. She was a, almost a household name in the American 20th century. And he thought if he could just convince her to join the movement, she could really use her talents to help him. And it worked. So his arguments convinced her. She describes it as a conversion experience. She says she could never live her life the same way again. The whole world looked different. It was like the scales fell from her eyes. She couldn't believe that she hadn't seen this before. And then I think she did a real sort of inventory check of her own powers and her own talents, asking herself, which of these can I now use to devote to ending slavery? And that's when she concluded that she wanted to write this book, which she published in 1833, called An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans, which was a, you know, a book length, again, just denunciation of slavery. So the book has chapters on history, on politics, on economics, all of these spheres that women were not supposed to mix in. But the last chapter, it's like I sometimes say she wheels her cannon around and points it at her own hometown. And the first sentence of that last chapter is something like, while we bestow our earnest disapprobation on our brethren in the South, let us not flatter ourselves that we are any better than they. 
And then she just explains to Northerners how their complicity in the economics of slavery, their politicians' complicity in the politics of slavery were making enslavement possible. And then she says, plus it's Northerners' racism that makes Southern slavery possible. So the fact that Northerners won't allow Black people into their churches or their stagecoaches or their hotels or their schools, that they shout racial epithets on the street, all of these things sustain slavery. And this was not what her white readers wanted to hear. Like they were happy to hear house cleaning tips, but they didn't want her to tell them that they were complicit in slavery. So that was part of her trajectory that she really lost her readership at that point um, and spent much of the rest of her life in a kind of principled poverty, um, still publishing, but never with the kind of popular audience that I think she could have continued to have. Yeah, I think that's one of the really heartbreaking effects of reading about this period in her life, because like as she starts living for her principles, you know, some of her readers start throwing her books out the window with tongs, which is just like an incredible, like, I can't even touch this book. And that wasn't even a Southerner. That was someone in Boston. That's right. But, you know, at the same time, like her readership kind of grew more influential because Charles Sumner credits her. And her book with pushing him towards abolition, which is huge and which is something like I've never heard before. Yeah. And so I think a couple things are really important about what you just said. One is that I think Northerners, I've always lived in the North myself. I think we tend still to feel pretty self-righteous and to feel like, well, you know, slavery wasn't our problem. Racism isn't our problem. You know, racism is more a problem in the South. And I think we just need to stop that and stop convincing ourselves of that. And I also just want to acknowledge that while Child sacrificed what I think could have been a much more lucrative uh, writing career, it was always very clear to her, and it should be clear to us, that what she sacrificed was nothing compared to what Black abolitionists were suffering and sacrificing, and just Black Americans in general, of course. So there's a part in the book where I really recount a terrible part of her career where she was alienated from her own allies. Uh, Her husband had gone bankrupt. She had separated from her husband for all kinds of reasons. So she'd really, she'd lost a lot of friends. She'd lost her marriage. It looked like they did reconcile, but, and in that period, she really withdrew. She continued to work against slavery in smaller ways, but not in the big public ways that she had been. But that was something that black abolitionists were never able to do. They were never able to take that kind of break and just sort of um, hide in the anonymous streets of New York City, right? And so I don't want to turn child into a kind of hero and and martyr in a way that distracts us from recognizing what Black abolitionists and Black Americans in general were putting up with every day and still do for in many ways. Mm-hmm. I think in reading about the Civil War and various histories of it, whether you're reading Black Reconstruction by W.B. Du Bois or more recent history, there's always that question of like, what was the sort of galvanizing force that ultimately ended slavery in the United States? Because it was such a huge change, you know, and Du Bois and now contemporary historians place a lot of the momentum behind Black Americans, enslaved people who like joined the Union cause and say definitively that was that. Um, But for the war to even start, you know, you also have to have black abolitionists, black writers, white abolitionists, all of these people sort of 
changing the discourse yes. <laughs> in some ways. Yes. You know, I think that's still a perennial question is like, how do you change something so entrenched in American society, so entrenched in American economy? I'm wondering if you can point to some examples, you know, in your research into child life of ways that that question plays itself out. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting tensions in Lydia Maria Child's life was that she was what was called a non-resistant abolitionist, which meant that she did not think that force should ever be used, even to end enslavement, which was the thing that she cared most about in her life. And as you probably know, many of your listeners will know, that was a question that split the abolitionist movement, whether you should use political power and whether violence was justified. But once John Brown staged his insurrection in Virginia in 1859, together with several men, five of them who were Black, Child was put in this position of disapproving with the violence that he had used. They had killed people in the raid, and they had full intentions of killing other people if necessary, but also being so moved by his actions and his willingness to die for the cause. And... Um, his behavior afterwards, which was so extraordinary in the words that he used um, during his trial, that she tried to um, go and nurse him. Actually, there's a wonderful, it's not an anecdote, it's a whole story where she um, writes to the governor of Virginia and says, can I come and nurse John Brown in jail? And the governor writes back and says, you know, I guess so. Um, but by the way, this John Brown's violence is the fault of people like you, abolitionists who've been rabble-rousing and stirring the pot, getting people like Brown so upset. And then Wise went and published that letter, his letter and Child's letter, in the newspaper as a way of shaming her. Well, he clearly had no idea who he was dealing with because she just took that as an opportunity to write back in the newspaper, a total denunciation of him. She calls him a murderer and a traitor. Um, she says, essentially, the sooner you secede, the better. <laughs> um, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And then um, that letter, she publishes that letter, that letter so enraged a Mrs. Mason in Virginia that she publishes a letter against Child. Child writes back. Anyway, it's kind of the 19th century equivalent of going viral, and then Child publishes the whole thing, everybody's letters together in a tract that sells 300,000 copies of argument. So this is a sort of long way of saying that this is one case in my mind that points to the fact that sometimes it takes all possible approaches to address something as entrenched as slavery. One of the reasons that Child was so opposed to both um, politics and violence as a way of ending enslavement was she was sure that unless slavery ended because white Americans changed their hearts, it would just resurface in another form. And so when she died in 1880, I'm afraid it was very much with the consciousness that she'd been right about that. So she lived long enough to watch the horrific racial terrorism that exploded across the South. She would hear from Black people in the South writing to her desperate that she help them spread the message that they were being massacred. Um, and I think in that sense, she died feeling that a big part of what she had tried to do had failed, that the United States had not reckoned with its racial sins, but just kicked them down the road to resurface in another way. I mean, so what does she do after 
the Civil War after, you know, she spends several years really pushing for the abolition of enslavement and then it happens in name, if not entirely indeed. One of the things she did immediately before the war was even over was publish something called the Freedman's Book, which was a book that was uh, intended to help newly emancipated Black Americans not just learn to read, but really learn about Black history. So there were a variety of such books out there, but hers is really distinguished by the fact that there are Black authors in it, poets, there are essays about Black scientists and historians and politicians and military leaders, because I think she really wanted to show that they had a noble and honorable history to build on, and that there are also many stories of people who had self-emancipated. So she also wanted them to see that she knew that they hadn't just been victims, that they had agency within slavery. So that was one thing she did. I will say about that briefly that I really admire what she did, but there is a sense also in that book that she's urging them to forgive immediately the people who had enslaved them in a way that, again, puts an enormous pressure on them that I feel is is morally problematic. But moving on from that, she also she raised a lot of money for these quote-unquote freedmen. And then she really turned her energies to trying to argue for racial equality and for, again, some of the transformative economic um, initiatives that she hoped would happen and didn't happen. She got very involved in writing for the women's rights cause towards the end of her life. She opposed people like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who, um, once it became clear that the 15th Amendment was going to include Black men, but not women, opposed it. So Child continued to support the 15th Amendment, even when it became clear that it was going to exclude women. Um, And then at the very end of her life, she devoted herself to fighting religious intolerance, because she always believed that if humans could get rid of the dogmas and the theologies that separated them, they would come to see each other as equals and interact with each other on a basis of love that she thought was our best chance at getting rid of um, this whole slew of injustices that she had spent her life fighting. But I I will say that I think she died fairly discouraged. Um, Sometimes people would say to her at the end of her life, aren't you glad that you've lived to see justice done to the Negro? And she would say, if I do live long enough to see justice done to the Negro, I will be happy, but not until then. Which, again, was not what white northerners wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, you know, congratulations, you ended slavery. We can all feel good about ourselves. And she really was never willing to let anyone who was white and complicit feel that way. Do you think that's why she isn't remembered for any of this? <laughs> I do, actually. I think I think there are a lot of reasons that she was very quickly forgotten. I'm sure gender has a lot to do with it. I'm sure the fact that she was also a children's author and a self-help book author is an easy way for people to pigeonhole her and marginalize her. But she also refused to go out on a heroic note. So William Lloyd Garrison died just a couple of months before she did. 1,500 people came to his funeral. Flags flew at half-mast up and down the eastern seaboard. His children immediately went to work, being sure that he was never forgotten. 
child by contrast when she died it turned out that she had left these brutally spartan instructions for her funeral she didn't want anyone there she didn't want even any flowers so she was kind of buried in obscurity and that was principled on her part too she hated what she called lion hunting she hated it when people went looking for heroes and tried to put them up on pedestals I think because she saw the dangers in doing that, especially for white people, that white people would then sort of affiliate themselves with these heroes and forget that most of them were actually much more complicit and complacent the way many of us are now. And again, I'm not sure that that's what most people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear more William Lloyd Garrison's triumphant, we finished it, we were victorious, um, and so in a way, I think her principled honesty to the end of her life contributed in some ways to the fact that um, she's not better known now. So how do you balance her dying wishes with your wishes to write a big definitive biography about her, you know, in 2022? That is a great question. And I have many times wondered if wherever she is now, she isn't a little annoyed with me. Um, but let me say this. One of the letters that she wrote that, again, just sort of electrified me was one very, at the very end of her life, she wrote to one of the people she was closest to, something to the effect of, my body is failing. I can't wait to get rid of it so that I can go back to work. I think there's more work for me to do in the universe. And I think that's her way of acknowledging that she wanted her work and her words to do more work beyond her physical life. And so when I discovered her in this moment in our national history that feels like we need her words so badly and we need her example and to learn from her mistakes and learn from her from her insistence on our facing our own complicity, um, I thought maybe this is a way to, to make that wish for her a reality. We have links in the show notes to Lydia Molin's new biography, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life, as well as the essay adapted from it that we ran in our last issue. Much like my inadvertent penchant for booking guests who write about Oklahoma, I've also booked a lot of people who write about 19th century women. So links to those episodes are also in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm -hmm.